Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of Thomas Merton's The Seven-Story Mountain. Volume 13, Book 3, Chapter 2, Part 1. True North. It was very hot on Church Street. The street was torn up and the dust swirled in the sun like gold around the crawling buses and trucks and taxis. There were crowds of people on the sidewalks. I stood under the relatively cool white walls of the new post office building, and then, suddenly, walking into the crowd, I saw my brother, who was supposed to be in Ithaca. He was coming out of the building and walking with more of a purpose, more of a swing. He almost ran into me. Oh, he said. Hi. Are you going out to Douglaston? I'll give you a ride. I've got a car here just around the corner. What are you doing here, I said. Under the arching door of the big building were placards about joining the Navy, the Army, and the Marines. The only question in my mind was which one he had been trying to join. Did you read about this new Naval Reserve scheme they've got? He said. I knew something about it. That was what he was trying to get into. It was practically settled. You go on a cruise, and then you get a commission. Is it as easy as that? Well, I guess they're anxious to get men. Of course, you have to be a college man. When I told him I was not going to enter the novitiate, after all, he said, Why don't you come into the Naval Reserve? No, I said. No, thanks. Presently, he said, What's that package you got under your arm? Buy some books? Yes. When he had unlocked the car, I ripped the paper off the package and took out the cardboard box containing the set of four books bound in black leather marked in gold. I handed him one of the volumes. It was sleek and smelled new. The pages were edged in gold. There were red and green markers. What are they? asked John Paul. Breviaries. The four books represented a decision. They said if I could not live in the monastery, I should try to live in the world as if I were a monk in a monastery. They said I was going to get as close as possible to the life I was not allowed to lead. If I could not wear the religious habit, I would at least join a third order and would try my best to get a job teaching in some Catholic college where I could live under the same roof as the Blessed Sacrament. There could be no more question of living just like everybody else in the world. There could be no more compromises with the life that tried at every turn to feed me poison. I had to turn my back on these things. God had kept me out of the cloister. That was his affair. He had also given me a vocation to live the kind of life that people led in cloisters. If I could not be a religious, a priest, that was God's affair. But nevertheless, he still wanted me to lead something of the life of a priest or of a religious. I had said something to Father Edmund about it in a general way, and he had agreed. But I did not tell him about the breviaries. It did not even occur to me to do so. I had said, I am going to try to live like a religious. He thought that was all right. If I was teaching and living in a college, that would be all right. It would be fine. And he was glad I wanted to join the Third Order, although he did not seem to attach much importance to it. For my own part, I was not quite sure what a Third Order secular amounted to in modern America. But thinking of the Franciscan tertiaries of the Middle Ages and of their great saints, I realized in some obscure way that there were, or at least should be, great possibilities of sanctification in the Third Order, I did have a sort of suspicion that it might turn out, after all, to be a little more 
in the minds of most of its members than a society for gaining indulgences. But in any case, I did not despise indulgences either, or any of the other spiritual benefits that came with the cord and scapular. However, it was going to be a long time before I got them, and in the meantime I did not hesitate to shape out the new life I thought God wanted of me. It was a difficult and uncertain business, and I was starting again to make a long and arduous climb, alone, from what seemed to be a great depth. If I had ever thought I had become immune from passion, and that I did not have to fight for freedom, there was no chance of that illusion any more. It seemed that every step I took carried me painfully forward under a burden of desires that almost crushed me with the monotony of their threat, the intimate, searching familiarity of their ever-present disgust. I did not have any lofty theories about the vocation of a lay contemplative. In fact, I no longer dignified what I was trying to do by the name of a vocation. All I knew was I wanted grace, and that I needed prayer, and that I was helpless without God, and that I wanted to do everything that people did to keep close to him. It was no longer possible to consider myself abstractly as being in a certain state of life, which had special technical relations to other states of life. All that occupied me now was the immediate practical problems of getting up my hill with this terrific burden I had on my shoulders, step by step, begging God to drag me along and get me away from my enemies and from those who were trying to destroy me. I did not even reflect how the breviary, the canonical office, was the most powerful and effective prayer I could possibly have chosen since it was the prayer of the whole church, and concentrates in itself all the power of the church's interpretation centered around the infinitely mighty sacrifice of the Mass, the jewel of which the rest of the liturgy is the setting, the soul which is the life of the whole liturgy and of all sacramentals. All this was beyond me, although I grasped it at least obscurely. All I knew was that I needed to say the breviary and say it every day. Buying those books at Benzinger's that day was one of the best things I ever did in my life. The inspiration to do it was a very great grace. There are a few things I can remember that give me more joy. The first time I actually tried to say the office was on the feast of the Cure of Ars, St. John Vianney. I was on the train going back to Olean, and because the cottage was, for the first time being, the safest place I could think of, and because anyway... My best prospect for a job was at St. Bonaventure's. As soon as the train was well started on its journey and was climbing into the hills towards Suffern, I opened the book and began right away with Matins in the common of a confessor non-pontiff. Venite, exultemus domino, jubilemus deo salutare nostro. It was a very happy experience, although... Its exultancy was subdued and lost under my hesitations and external confusions about how to find my way around the jungle of the rubrics. To begin with, I did not know enough to look for the general rubrics at the beginning of the Pars Himalis. And anyway, when I did eventually find them, there was too much information in small print and obscure canonical Latin for me to make much out of them. The train climbed slowly into the Catskills, and I went on from psalm to psalm smoothly enough. By the time I got to the lessons of the second nocturne, I had figured out whose feast it was that I was celebrating. This business of saying the office on the Erie train going up through the Delaware Valley was to become a familiar experience, 
in the year that was ahead. Of course, I soon found out the ordinary routine by which Martins and Lauds are anticipated the evening of the day before. Usually then, on my way from New York to Olean, I would be saying the little hours around 10 o'clock in the morning when the train had passed Port Jervis and was traveling at the base of the steep wooded hills that hemmed in the river on either side. If I looked up from the pages of the book, I would see the sun blazing on the trees and moist rocks and flashing on the surface of the shallow river and playing in the forest of foliage along the line. And all this was very much like what the book was singing to me, so that everything lifted up my heart to God. Thou sendest forth springs in the vales. Between the midst of the hills the waters shall pass. Over them the birds of the air shall dwell. From the midst of the rocks they shall give forth their voices. Thou waterest the hills from thy upper rooms. The earth shall be filled with the fruit of thy works. The trees of the field shall be filled in the cedars of Lebanon, which he hath planted. There the sparrows shall make their nests. The highest of them is the house of the heron. The high hills are the refuge for the hearts, the rocks for the urchins. All expect from thee that thou shalt give them food in season. What thou givest them thou shalt gather up. When thou openest thy hand, they shall be all filled with good. Thou shalt send forth thy spirit, and they shall be created. And thou shalt renew the face of the earth. Yes, and from the secret places of his essence, God began to fill my soul with grace in those days. Grace that sprung from deep within me. I could not know how or where, but yet I would be able, after not so many months, to realize what was there in the peace and the strength that were growing in me through my constant immersion in this tremendous, unending cycle of prayer, ever renewing its vitality, its inexhaustible sweet energies, from hour to hour, from season to season, in its returning round. And I, drawn into that atmosphere, into that deep, vast, universal movement of vitalizing prayer, which is Christ praying in men to his Father, could not help but begin at last to live and to know that I was alive. And my heart could not help but cry out within me, I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. Let my speech be acceptable to him. But I will take delight in the Lord. Truly, he was sending forth his Spirit, uttering his divine word and binding me to himself through his Spirit, proceeding from the word spoken within me. As the months went on, I could not help but realize it. Then, when I finished the little hours and closed the breviary at the end of the non-reciting of the Sacrosante, and looked up out of the window to see the seminary of Calicoon momentarily appear on its distant hilltop at the end of a long avenue of river, I no longer felt so much anguish and sorrow at not being in the monastery. But I'm getting ahead of my story. For in these days, in the late summer of 1940, it was not yet that way. The breviary was hard to learn, and every step was labor and confusion, not to mention the mistakes and the perplexities I got myself into. However, Father Arrhenius helped to straighten me out and told me how the various feasts worked together and how to say the first vespers for the proper feast and all the other things one needed to find out. Apart from him, however, 
I didn't speak of the breviary to any other priest. I kept quiet about it, half fearing that someone would make fun of me or think I was eccentric or try to snatch my books away from me on some pretext. I would have been better off if I had been acting under the guidance of a director, but I had no understanding of such things in those days. Meanwhile, I put on my best blue suit and hitchhiked out to St. Bonaventure and spoke with Father Thomas Plasman, who was the president of the college and the picture of benevolence. He listened kindly and soberly to my answers to his questions, filling a chair with his huge frame and looking at me through his glasses. Out of a great kind face built on pontifical lines and all set for smiles paternal enough to embrace an archdiocese. Father Thomas would make a wonderful prelate. As a matter of fact, all the students and the seminarians at St. Bonaventure held him in great awe for his learning and piety. Back in Olean, his reputation was even greater. Once I had someone whisper to me that Father Thomas was the third best educated man in America. I was not able to find out who the other two ahead of him were, or how it was possible to determine who was the best educated, or what precisely that means, though. But in any case, he gave me a job at St. Bonaventure's teaching English, for it fell out that Father Valentine Long, who wrote books and taught literature to the sophomores, had been transferred to Holy Name College in Washington. In the second week of September, with a trunk full of books and a typewriter, and that old portable phonograph I had bought when I was still at Oakham, I moved into the little room that was assigned to me on the second floor of the big red brick building that was both a dormitory and a monastery. Out my window, I could look beyond the chapel front to the garden and the fields and the woods. There was a little astronomical observatory out there behind the greenhouses, and in the distance you could tell where the river was by the line of trees at the end of the pasture. And then beyond that, were the high wooded hills, and my gaze traveled up Five Mile Valley beyond the farms to Martini's rocks. My eyes often wandered out there and rested in that peaceful scene, and the landscape became associated with my prayers, where I often prayed looking out of that window. And even at night, the tiny glowing light of a far farmhouse window in Five Mile Valley attracted my eye, the only visible thing in the black darkness as I knelt on the floor and said my last prayer to Our Lady. As the months went on, I began to drink poems out of those hills. If the room was not quiet either, it was right on a corner next to the stairs, and when anybody on our floor was wanted on the telephone, someone would rush up the stairs and stick his head into the corridor right by my door and yell down the echoing hall. All day long, I heard voices bellowing, Hey, Cassidy! Cassidy! but I did not mind. It did not stop me from doing twice as much work in that room in one year as I had done in all the rest of my life put together. It amazed me how swiftly my life fell into a plan of fruitful and pleasant organization here under the roof with the friars in this house dedicated to God. The answer to this was, of course, the God who lived under the same roof with me, hidden in his sacrament, the heart of the house, diffusing his life through it from the chapel tabernacle, and also the office I recited every day was another answer. Finally, there was the fact of my seclusion. By this time, I had managed to get myself free from all the habits and luxuries that people in the world think they need for their comfort and amusement. My mouth was at last clean of the yellow, parching salt of nicotine, 
and I had rinsed my eyes of the gray slops of movies so that now my taste and my vision were clean, and I had thrown away the books that soiled my heart and my ears too had been cleansed of all wild and fierce noises and had poured into them peace. Peace. Except for that yell, hey, Cassidy, which, after all, did not make much difference. Best of all, my will was in order. My soul was in harmony with itself and with God, though not without battle and not without cost. That was a price I had to pay or lose my life altogether, so there was no alternative but wait in patience and let myself be ground out between the upper and nether millstones of the two conflicting laws within me. Nor could I taste anything of the sense that this is really a martyrdom full of merit and pleasing to God. I was still too obsessed with the sheer brute difficulty of it and the crushing humiliation that faced me all the time. Peccatum meum contra me est semper. Yet in spite of all that, there was in me the profound, sure certitude of liberty, the moral certitude of grace, of union with God, which bred peace that could not be shattered or overshadowed by any necessity to stand armed and ready for conflict. And this peace was all rewarding, and it was worth everything, and every day it brought me back to Christ's altar and to my daily bread, that infinitely holy and mighty and secret wholesomeness that was cleansing and strengthening my sick being through and through and feeding with his infinite life my poor, shredded sinews of morality. I was writing a book. It was not much of a book, and I had classes to prepare. It was the latter work that had the most in it of health and satisfaction and reward. I had three big classes of sophomores, 90 students in all, to bring through English literature from Beowulf to the Romantic Revival in one year. And a lot of them didn't even know how to spell. But that didn't worry me very much, and it could not alter my happiness with Piers Plowman and the Nun's Priest Tale and Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. I was back again in the atmosphere that had enthralled me as a child. The serene and simple and humorous Middle Ages not the loot and goblin and mothballed Middle Ages of Tennyson, but the real Middle Ages, the 12th and 13th and 14th centuries, full of fresh air and simplicity as solid as wheat bread and grape wine and water mills and ox-drawn carts, the age of Cistercian monasteries and of the first Franciscans. And so in my innocence I stood up and talked about all these things in front of those rooms full of football players with long, unpronounceable names, and because they saw that I myself liked my own subject matter, they tolerated it, and even did a certain amount of work for me without too much complaint. The classes were a strange mixture. The best elements in them were the football players and the seminarians. The football players were mostly on scholarships, and they did not have much money, and they stayed in at night most of the time. As a group, they were the best-natured and the best-tempered, and worked as hard as the seminarians. They were also the most vocal. They liked to talk about these books when I stirred them up to argue. They liked to open their mouths and deliver rough, earnest, and sometimes sardonic observations about the behavior of these figures in literature. Also, some of them were strong and pious Catholics with souls full of faith and simplicity and honesty and conviction, 
yet without the violence and intemperance that comes from mere prejudice. At Columbia, it had been pretty much the fashion to despise football players as stupid, and I don't maintain that they are, as a class, geniuses. But the ones at St. Bonas taught me much more about people than I taught them about books, and I learned to have a lot of respect and affection for these rough, earnest, good-natured, and patient men who had to work hard and take so many bruises and curses to entertain the friars and alumni on the football field and to advertise the school. I wonder what happened to them. How many of them got shot up in Africa or the Philippines? What became of that black-haired, grinning Mastro Giacomo who confided in me all his ambitions about being a band leader? Or that lanky, cat-faced villain Chapman whom I saw one night after a dance walking around chewing on a whole ham. What have they done with that big, quiet Irishman Quinn or Woody McCarthy with his long, bulbous nose and eyebrows full of perplexity and his sallies of gruff wit? Then there was Red Hagerman, who was not Catholic and who looked like all the big, cheerful, muscle-bound football players they believed in in the 1920s. He went off and got himself married toward the end of that year. Another one called Red was Red McDonald. And he was one of the best students in the class and one of the best people, a serious young Irishman with a wide-open face, all full of sincerity and hard work. Then there was the big round-faced Polish boy whose name I've forgotten, who grabbed hold of the tail of a cow which dragged him all around the pasture on the day of the sophomore beer party at the end of the year. The most intelligent students were the seminarians or the ones who were going to enter the seminary, and they were the quietest. They kept pretty much to themselves and handed in neat papers which you could be relatively sure were their original work. Probably by now they are all priests. The rest of the class was a mixture of all kinds of people, some of them disgruntled, some of them penniless and hardworking, some of them rich and dumb and too fond of beer. Some of them liked to play the drums and knew how. Others liked to play them and did not know how. Some of them were good dancers and danced a lot. Others just went uptown and played the slot machines until the last minute before midnight when they came back to the college in a panic-stricken rush to get in before the time limit was up. One of them, Joe Nostry, thought he was a communist. I don't suppose he had a very clear idea of what a communist was. One day he went to sleep in class and one of the football players gave him a hot foot. Of all the crowd, it could not be said that they were very different from the students I had known in other colleges. With a few exceptions, they were certainly no holier. They got drunk just as much, but they made more noise about it and had less money to spend and were handicapped by the necessity of getting back to the dormitory at a certain time. Twice a week, they had to get up and hear Mass, which was a burden to most of them. Only very few of them heard Mass and went to communion every day, outside of the seminarians. However, most of them clung with the conviction to the Catholic faith a loyalty which was resolute and inarticulate. It was hard to tell just how much that loyalty was a matter of conscious faith and how much it was based on attachment to their class and social environment. But they were all pretty definite about being Catholics. One could not say of them that, as a whole, they led lives that went beyond the ordinary level demanded of a Christian. Some of the most intelligent of them often startled me with statements that showed that they had not penetrated below the surface of Catholicism and did not really appreciate its spirit. One, for instance, argued that the virtue of humility was nonsense 
and that it sapped a man of all his vitality and initiative. Another one did not think that there were any such things as devils. All of them were serene in their conviction that the modern world was the highest point reached by man in his development, and that our present civilization left very little to be desired. I wonder if the events of 1943 and the two following years did anything to change their opinions. That winter, when I was talking about the England of Langland and Chaucer and Shakespeare and Webster, the war machine of totalitarian Germany had turned to devour that island, and morning after morning when I glanced at the New York Times in the library between classes, I read the headlines about the cities that had been cut to pieces with bombs. Night after night, the huge, dark mass of London was bursting into wide areas of flame that turned its buildings into empty craters and carried those miles and miles of slums. Around St. Paul's, the ancient city was devastated, and there was no acre of Westminster, Bloomsbury, Camden Town, Mayfair, Bayswater, Paddington that had not been deeply scarred. Coventry was razed to the ground. Bristol, Birmingham, Sheffield, Newcastle were all raided, and the land was full of blood and smoke. The noise of that fearful chastisement, the fruit of modern civilization, penetrated to the ears and minds of very few at St. Bonaventure's. The friars understood something that was going on, but they lost themselves, for the most part, in futile political arguments, if they talked about it at all. But the students were more concerned with the movies and beer and mousy little girls that ran around Olean in ankle socks, even when the snow lay deep on the ground. I think it was in November that we all lined up, students and secular professors, in Della Roche Hall and gave our names in to be drafted. The whole process was an extremely quiet and unmomentous one. You didn't even have the boredom of waiting. I gave my name and my age and all the rest and got a small white card. It was quickly over. It did not bring the war very close. Yet it was enough to remind me that I was not going to enjoy this pleasant and safe and stable life forever. Indeed, perhaps now that I had just begun to taste my security, it would be taken away again, and I would be cast back into the midst of violence and uncertainty and blasphemy and the play of anger and hatred and all passion, worse than ever before. It would be the wages of my own twenty-five years. This war was what I had earned for myself and the world. I could hardly complain that I was being drawn into it. Part 2 If we were all being pulled into the vortex of that fight, it was being done slowly and gradually. I was surprised when my brother was cast back into the solid area of peace, relative peace. It was one rainy night in the fall that he appeared in Olean on a new shiny Buick convertible roadster with a long black hood and a chassis crouched low to the ground, built for expensive and silent speed. The thing was all fixed up with searchlights, and as for my brother, he was not in uniform. What about the Navy, I asked him. It turned out they were not giving out commissions in the naval reserves as freely as he had supposed, and he had had some differences of opinion with his commanding officers. And at the end of a cruise to the West Indies, and after an examination of some sort, both my brother and the naval reserve were mutually delighted to end their association with one another. I was not sorry.
What are you going to do now? Wait until you get drafted? I suppose so, he said. And in the meantime, maybe I'll go to Mexico. I want to take some pictures of those Mayan temples. As a matter of fact, that was where he went when the weather got cold, to the Yucatan, to find one of those lost cities in the jungle and take a pile of kodachromes of those evil stones soaked in the blood that once poured out in libation to devils by forgotten generations of Indians. He did not get his restlessness in Mexico or Yucatan. He only found more of it among those blue volcanoes. Snow comes early to St. Bonaventure's, and when the snow came, I used to say the little hours of the breviary, walking in the deep, untrodden drifts along the wood's edge towards the river. No one would ever come and disturb me out there in all that silence under the trees, which made a noiseless, rudimentary church over my head between me and the sky. It was wonderful out there when the days were bright, even though the cold bit down to the roots of my fingernails as I held open the breviary in my hands. I could look up from the book and recite the parts I already knew by heart, gazing at the glittering snow-covered hills, white and gold and planted with bare trees, standing out bright against the blinding blue sky. Oh, America, how I began to love your country. What miles of silences God has made in you for contemplation. If only people realized what all your mountains and forests were really for. The new year came, 1941, and as January I was to have my 26th birthday and enter upon my 27th most momentous year. Already in February, or before that, the idea came to me that I might make a retreat in some monastery for Holy Week and Easter. Where would it be? The first place that came to my mind was the Trappist Abbey that Dan Walsh had told me about in Kentucky, and as soon as I thought about it, I saw that this was the only choice. That was where I needed to go. Something had opened out inside me in the last months, something that required, demanded, at least a week in that silence, in that austerity, praying together with the monks in their cold choir. And my heart expanded with anticipation and happiness. Meanwhile, suddenly one day, toward the beginning of Lent, I began to write poems. I cannot assign any one special cause for the ideas that began to crowd on me from every side, I'd been reading the Spanish poet Lorca, with whose poetic vein I felt in the greatest sympathy. But that was not enough in itself to account for all the things I now began to write. In the first weeks of Lent, the fasting I took on myself, which was not much, but at least it came up to the standard required by the church for an ordinary Christian, and did not evade its obligation under some privilege in which I was not entitled, instead of cramping my mind, freed it, and seemed to let loose the string of my tongue. Sometimes I would go several days at a time, writing a new poem every day. They were not all good, but some of them were better than I had written before. In the end, I did not altogether reject more than half a dozen of them, and having sent many of the others to various magazines, I at last had the joy of seeing one or two of them accepted. Towards the beginning of March, I wrote to the Trappists at Gethsemane, asking if I could come down there for a retreat during Holy Week. I had barely received their reply, telling me they would be glad to have me there, when another letter came. That was from the draft board, telling me that my number was up for the army.
I was surprised. I'd forgotten about the draft, or rather I had made calculations that put all this off until at least after Easter. However, I had thought out my position with regard to the war and knew what I had to do in conscience. I made out my answers to the questionnaires with peace in my heart and not much anticipation that it would make any difference in my case. It was about eight years since we had all stood under the banner in the gymnasium at Columbia, and the Reds had shouted and stamped on that platform, and we had all loudly taken a pledge that we were not going to fight in any war whatever. Now America was moving into position to enter a war as the ally of countries that had been attacked by the Nazis, and the Nazis had, as their ally, communist Russia. Meanwhile, in those eight years, I had developed a conscience. If I had objected to war before, it was more on the basis of emotion than anything else, and my unconditional objection had, therefore, been foolish in more ways than one. On the other hand, I was not making the mistake of switching from one emotional extreme to the other. This time, as far as I was able, I felt that I was called upon to make clear my own position as a moral duty. To put it in terms less abstract and stuffy, God was asking me by the light and grace that he had given me to signify where I stood in relation to the actions of governments and armies and states in this world overcome with the throes of its own blind wickedness. He was not asking me to judge all the nations of the world or to elucidate all the moral and political motives behind their actions. He was not demanding that I pass some critical decision defining the innocence and guilt of all those concerned in the war. He was asking me to make a choice that amounted to an act of love for his truth, his goodness, his charity, his gospel, as an individual, as a member of his mystical body. He was asking me to do, to the best of my knowledge, what I thought Christ would do. For a war to be just, it must be a war of defense. A war of aggression was not just. If America entered the war now, would it be a war of aggression? I suppose if you wanted to get subtle about it, you could work out some kind of an argument to that effect, but I personally could not see that it would be anything else than legitimate self-defense. How legitimate? To answer that, I would have had to have been a moral theologian and a diplomat and a historian and a politician and probably also a mind reader, and still I would not have had more than a probable answer. Since there was such strong probable evidence that we were really defending ourselves, that settled the question as far as I was concerned. I had more of a doubt on the question of whether it was really necessary or not. Did we really have to go to war? A lot of people were asking themselves that question, and the argument about it was rather hot among some of the friars at St. Bonaventure's. As far as I could see, it was a question that no private individual was capable of answering and the situation was getting to be grave enough for it to be necessary to leave the government to make its own choice. The men in Washington presumably knew what was going on better than we did, and if, in a situation as obscure as this one was, and as perilous, they thought war was going to be necessary, what could we do about it? If they called me to the army, I could not absolutely refuse to go. The last and most crucial doubt about the war was the morality of the means used in the fight. The bombing of open cities, the wholesale slaughter of civilians. To my mind, there was very little doubt about the immorality of the methods used in modern war. Self-defense is good 
and unnecessary war is licit, but methods that descend to wholesale barbarism and ruthless indiscriminate slaughter of non-combatants, practically without defense, are hard to see as anything else but mortal sins. This was the hardest question of all to decide. Fortunately, the draft law was framed in such a way that I did not have to decide it, for there was a provision made for those who were willing to help the country without doing any killing. As I say, I couldn't tell just how much those provisions would mean in actual practice, but they looked nice on paper, and the least I could do was take advantage of them. And therefore, I made out my papers with an application to be considered a non-combatant objector, that is, one who would willingly enter the army and serve in the medical corps or stretcher-bearer or a hospital orderly or any other thing like that, as long as I did not have to drop bombs on open cities or shoot at other men. After all, Christ did say, Whatsoever you have done to the least of my brethren, you did to me. I know that it is not the mind of the church that this be applied literally to war, or rather, that war is looked upon as a painful but necessary social surgical operation in which you kill your enemy not out of hatred but for the common good. That is all very fine in theory, but as far as I could see, since the government was apparently holding out an opportunity to those who wanted to serve in the army without killing other men, I could avoid the whole question and follow what seemed to me to be a much better course. After all, I might be able to turn an evil situation into a source of much good. In the medical corps, if that was where they put me, I would not be spared any of the dangers that fell upon other men, and at the same time I would be able to help them, to perform works of mercy, and to overcome evil with good. I would be able to leaven the mass of human misery with the charity and mercy of Christ, and the bitter, ugly, filthy business of the war could be turned into an occasion for my own sanctification and the good of other men. If you set aside the practically insoluble problem of cooperation that might be brought up, it seemed to me that this was what Christ himself would have done and what he wanted me to do. I put down all my reasons and quoted St. Thomas for the edification of the draft board and got the whole business notarized and sealed and put it in an envelope and dropped it in the wide-open mouth of the mailbox in the Olean post office. When it was done, I walked out of the snowy street and an ineffable sense of peace settled in my heart. It was a late, cold afternoon. The frozen piles of snow lay along the swept sidewalks in the gutters in front of the small one-story buildings on State Street. Presently, Bob O'Brien, the plumber at the Olean house, who lived in Allegheny and who used to fix the pipes when they went wrong up at the cottage, came by in his car. He stopped to give me a ride. He was a big, jovial family man with white hair and several sons who served as altar boys at St. Bonaventure's Church in Allegheny. And as we passed out of town on the wide road, he was talking about peaceful and ordinary things. The country opened out before us, the setting sun shone as bright as blood along the tops of the hills, but the snow in the valleys and hollows was blue and even purple in the shadows. On the left of the road, the antenna of the radio station stood up into the clean sky, and far ahead of us lay the red brick buildings of the college, grouped in an imitation Italy in the midst of the alluvial valley. 
Beyond that, on the other side of the hill, were the redder buildings of St. Elizabeth's Convent, past the high bridge over the railroad tracks. My eyes opened and took all this in, and for the first time in my life I realized that I no longer cared whether I preserved my place in all this or lost it. Whether I stayed here or went to the army, all that no longer mattered. It was in the hands of one who loved me far better than I could ever love myself, and my heart was filled with peace. It was a peace that did not depend on houses or jobs or places or times or external conditions. It was a peace that time and material created situations could never give. It was a peace that the world cannot give, could not give. The weeks went by, and I wrote some more poems and continued to fast and keep my Lent. All I prayed was that God should let me know his will, and if it pleased him, there was only one other thing I asked for myself. If I had to go to the army, I begged him at least to let me make a retreat with the Trappist monks before I went. However, the next thing I got from the draft board was a notice to present myself for medical examination before the doctors in Olean. I had not been expecting things to develop that way, and at first I interpreted this to mean that my request for consideration as a non-combatant had simply been ignored. There were three days before the examination, and so I got permission to go down to New York. I thought I might see the draft board and talk to them, but that was not possible. In any case, it was not necessary. So the weekend turned out to be a sort of festival with my friends. I saw Lax, who was now working for the New Yorker, and had a desk of his own in a corner of their offices where he wrote letters to pacify the people who complained about the humor, or lack of it, in the pages of the magazine. Then we went to Long Beach and saw Seymour, and then Seymour and I and Lax all together got in a car and went to Port Washington and saw Gibney. The next day was St. Patrick's Day, and the massed bands of all the boys and girls in Brooklyn who had never had an ear for music were gathering under the windows of the New Yorker offices and outside the Gotham Bookmart, and I, an Englishman, wearing a shamrock, which I had bought from a Jew, went walking around the city, weaving in and out of the crowds, and thinking up a poem called April, although it was March. It was a fancy poem about javelins and leopards and lights through trees like arrows and a line that said, The little voices of the river change. I thought it up in and out of the light and the shade of the 40s between 5th and 6th Avenue and typed it on Lax's typewriter in the New Yorker office and showed it to Mark Van Doren in a subway station. And Mark said of the shamrock I was wearing, That is the greenest shamrock I have ever seen. It was a great St. Patrick's Day. That night I got on the Erie train, and since I was so soon, I thought to go to the Army. I paid money to sleep in the Pullman. Practically the only other Pullman passenger was a sedate Franciscan nun who turned out to be going to St. Elizabeth's. And so we got off at Olean together and shared a taxi out to Allegheny. On Monday, I prepared to go and be examined for the army. I was the first one there. I climbed the ancient stairs to the top floor of the Olean City Hall. I tried the handle of the room, marked for the medical board, and the door opened. I walked in and stood in the empty room. My heart was still full of the peace of communion. Presently, the first of the doctors arrived. You got here early, he said, and began to take off his coat and hat. We might as well begin, he said, 
The others will be along in a minute. So I stripped, and he listened to my chest and took some blood out of my arm and put it in a little bottle in a water heater to keep it cozy and warm for the Wasserman test. And while this was going on, the others were coming in, two other doctors to do the examining and lanky young farm boys to be examined. Now, said my doctor, let's see your teeth. I opened my mouth. Well, you've certainly had a lot of teeth out. And he began to count them. The doctor who was running the medical board was just coming in. My man got up and went to talk to him. I heard him say, Shall we finish the whole examination? I don't see much point to it. The head doctor came over and looked in my mouth. Oh, well, he said. Finish the examination anyway. He sat me down and personally took a crack at my reflexes and went through all the rest of it. When it was over, I was ready to get back into my clothes and I asked, What about it, doctor? Go home, he said. You haven't got enough teeth. Once again, I walked out into the snowy streets. So they didn't want me in the army after all, even as a stretcher bearer? The street was full of quiet, full of peace. And then I remembered it was the Feast of St. Joseph. Part 3 There were still about three weeks left until Easter. Thinking more and more about the Trappist Monastery where I was going to spend Holy Week, I went to the library one day and took down the Catholic Encyclopedia to read about the Trappists. I found out that the Trappists were Cistercians, and in looking up Cistercians, I also came across the Carthusians and a great big picture of the hermitages of the Camondoles. What I saw on those pages pierced me to the heart like a knife. What wonderful happiness there was then in the world. There were still men in this miserable, noisy, cruel earth who tasted the marvelous joy of silence and solitude, who dwelt in forgotten mountain cells, in secluded monasteries where the news and desires and appetites and conflicts of the world no longer reached them. They were free from the burden of the flesh's tyranny, and their clear vision, clean of the world's smoke and its bitter sting, were raised to heaven and penetrated into the deeps of heaven's infinite and healing light. They were poor, they had nothing, and therefore they were free and possessed everything, and everything they touched struck off something of the fire of divinity. And they worked with their hands, silently plowing and harrowing the earth, and sowing seed in obscurity, and reaping their small harvests to feed themselves and the other poor. They built their own houses and made with their own hands their own furniture, their own coarse clothing, and everything around them was simple and primitive and poor, because they were the least and the last of men. They had made themselves outcasts, seeking outside the walls of the world, Christ, poor and rejected of men. Above all, they had found Christ. They knew the power and the sweetness and the depth and the infinity of his love, living and working in them, in him, hidden in him. They had become the poor brothers of God. And for his love, they had thrown away everything and concealed themselves in the secret of his face. Yet because they had nothing, they were the richest men in the world, possessing everything, because in proportion, as grace emptied their hearts of created desire, the Spirit of God entered in and filled that place that had been made for God. 
and the poor brothers of God in their cells. They tasted within them the secret glory, the hidden manna, and the infinite nourishment and strength of the presence of God. They tasted the sweet exultancy of the fear of God, which is the first intimate touch of the reality of God known and experienced on earth, the beginning of heaven. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of heaven. And all day long God spoke to them, the clean voice of God in his tremendous peacefulness, spending truth within them as simply and directly as water wells up in a spring. And grace was in them, suddenly, always more and more abundance. They knew not from where, and the coming of this grace to them occupied them altogether and filled them with love and freedom. And grace, overflowing in all their acts and movements, made everything they did an act of love, glorifying God not by drama, not by gesture, not by outward show, but by the very simplicity and economy of utter perfection, so utter that it escapes notice entirely. Outside in the world were holy men who were holy in the sense that they went about with portraits of all the possible situations in which they could show their love of God displayed about them. And they were always conscious of all these possibilities. But these other hidden men had come so close to God in their hiddenness that they no longer saw anyone but him. They themselves were lost in the picture. There was no comparison between them receiving and God giving because the distance by which such comparison could be measured had dwindled to nothing. They were in him. They had dwindled down to nothing and had been transformed into him by the pure and absolute humility of their hearts. And the love of Christ overflowing in those clean hearts made them children and made them eternal. Old men with limbs like the roots of trees had the eyes of children and lived under their gray woolen cowls eternal. And all of them, the young and old, were ageless, the little brothers of God, the little children for whom was made the kingdom of heaven. Day after day, the round of canonical hours brought them together, and the love that was in them became songs as austere as granite and as sweet as wine. And they stood and they bowed in their long, solemn psalmody. Their prayer flexed its strong sinews and relaxed again into silence and suddenly flared up again in a hymn, the color of flame, and died into silence. And you could barely hear the weak, ancient voice saying the final prayer. The whisper of the amens ran around the stones like sighs, and the monks broke up their ranks and half-emptied the choir, some remaining to pray. And in the night they also rose and filled the darkness with the strong, patient anguish of their supplication to God, and the strength of their prayer, the Spirit of Christ concealing his strength in the words their voices uttered, amazingly held back the arm of God from striking and breaking at last the foul world full of greed and avarice and murder and lust and all sin. The thought of those monasteries, those remote choirs, those cells, those hermitages, those cloisters, those men in their cowls, the poor monks, the men who had become nothing, shattered my heart. In an instant, the desire of those solitudes was wide open within me like a wound. I had to slam the book shut on the picture of Kamaldoli and the bearded hermit standing 
in the stone street of cells, and I went out of the library trying to stamp out the embers that had broken into flame there for an instant within me. No, it was useless. I did not have a vocation, and I was not for the cloister, not for the priesthood. Had I not been told that definitely enough? Did it have to be beaten into my head all over again before I could believe it? And yet I stood there in the sun outside the dining hall waiting for the noon angelus, and one of the friars was talking to me. I could not contain the one thing that filled my heart. I am going to a Trappist monastery to make a retreat for Holy Week, I said. The things that jumped in the friar's eyes gave him the sort of expression you would expect if I had said, I am going to go and buy a submarine and live at the bottom of the sea. Don't let them change you, he said with a sort of lame smile. And that meant, don't go reminding the rest of us that all that penance might be right by getting a vocation to the Trappists. And I said, it would be a good thing if they did change me. It was a safe, oblique way of omitting what was in my heart, the desire to go to that monastery and stay for good. On the morning of this Saturday before Palm Sunday, I got up before five and heard part of a mass in the dark chapel and then had to make a run for the train. The rain fell on the empty station straight and continuous as a tower. All the way down the line in the pale growing day, the hills were black and rain drenched the valley and flooded the sleeping valley towns. Somewhere past Jamestown, I took out my breviary and said the little hours, and when we got into Ohio, the rain stopped. We changed stations at Galleon, and on the fast train down to Columbus, I got something to eat, and in southern Ohio, the air was drier still and almost clearing. Finally, in the evening, in the long rolling hills that led the way into Cincinnati, you could see the clouds tearing open all along the western horizon to admit long streaks of sun. It was an American landscape, big, vast, generous, fertile, and leading beyond itself into limitless expanses, open spaces. The whole west, my heart was full. So when we entered Cincinnati in the evening, with the lights coming on among all the houses and the electric signs shining on the hills and the huge freight yard swinging open on either side of the track and the high buildings in the distance, I felt as if I owned the world. And yet that was not because of these things, but because of Gethsemane, where I was going. It was the fact that I was passing through all this and did not desire it and wanted no part of it and did not seek to grasp or hold any of it, that I could exult in it. And it all cried out to me, God, God. I went to Mass and Communion the next morning in Cincinnati, and then took the train for Louisville, and waited in Louisville all the rest of the day because I did not have the sense to take a bus to one of the towns near Gethsemane and buy a ride from there to the monastery. It was not until after night fell that there was a train out to Gethsemane on the line to Atlanta. It was a slow train. The coach was dimly lit and full of people whose accents I could hardly understand. And you knew you were in the South because all the Negroes were huddled in a separate car. The train got out of the city into the country that was abysmally dark, even under the moon. You wondered if there were any houses out there. Pressing my face to the window and shading it with my hands, 
I saw the outline of a bare, stony landscape with sparse trees. The little towns we came to looked poor and forlorn and somewhat fierce in the darkness. And the train went its slow way through the spring night, branching off at Bardstown Junction, and I knew my station was coming. I stepped down out of the car and into the empty night. The station was dark. There was a car standing there, but no man in sight. There was a road and the shadow of a sort of factory a little distance away, and a few houses under some trees, and one of them was a light. The train had hardly stopped to let me off, and immediately gathered its ponderous momentum once again, and was gone around the bend with a flash of red tail light, leaving me in the middle of the silence and solitude of the Kentucky hills. I put my bag down in the gravel, wondering what to do next. Have they forgotten to make arrangements for me to get to the monastery? Presently, the door of one of the houses opened, and a man came out in a hurry. We got in the car together and started up the road, and in a minute we were in the midst of moonlit fields. Are the monks in bed? I asked the driver. It was only a few minutes past eight. Oh, yeah. They go to bed at seven o'clock. Is the monastery far? Mile and a half. I looked at the rolling country and at the pale ribbon of road in front of us, stretching out as gray as lead in the light of the moon. Then suddenly... I saw a steeple that shone like silver in the moonlight, growing into sight from behind a rounded knoll. The tires sang on the empty road, and breathless, I looked at the monastery that was revealed before me as we came up over the rise. At the end of an avenue of trees was a big rectangular block of buildings, all dark, with a church crowned by a tower and a steeple and a cross, and the steeple was as bright as platinum and the whole place was as quiet as midnight and lost in the all-absorbing silence and solitude of the fields. Behind the monastery was a dark curtain of woods, and over to the west was a wooded valley, and beyond that a rampart of wooded hills, a barrier and a defense against the world. And over all the valley smiled the gentle, mild Easter moon, the full moon in her kindness, loving this silent place. At the end of the avenue, in the shadows under the trees, I could make out the lowering arch of the gate and the words, Pax Entrontibus. The driver of the car did not go to the bell rope by the heavy wooden door. Instead, he went over and snatched on one of the windows and called in a low voice, Brother! Brother! I could hear someone stirring inside. Presently, the key turned in the door. I passed inside. The door closed quietly behind me. I was out of the world. The effect of that big, moonlit court, the heavy stone building, with all those dark and silent windows was overpowering. I could hardly answer the brother's whispered questions. I looked at his clear eyes, his graying, pointed beard. When I told him I came from St. Bonaventure's, he said dryly, I was a Franciscan once. We crossed the court, climbed some steps, and entered a high, dark hall. I hesitated on the brink of a polished, slippery floor while the brother groped for the light switch. Then, above another heavy door, I saw the words, God alone. Have you come here to stay? said the brother. The question terrified me. It sounded too much like the voice of my own conscience. 
Oh, no. Oh, no, I said. And I heard my whisper echoing around the hall and vanishing up the indefinite, mysterious heights of a dark, empty stairwell above our heads. The place smelled frighteningly clean, old and clean, an ancient house polished and swept and repainted and repainted over and over, year after year. What's the matter? Can't you stay? Are you married or something? No, I have a job, I said lamely. I began to climb the wide stairs. Our steps echoed in the empty darkness. One flight and then another and a third and a fourth. There was an immense distance between floors. It was a building with great high ceilings. Finally, we came to the top floor, and the brother opened the door into a wide room and put down my bag and left me. I heard his steps crossing the yard below to the gatehouse, and I felt the deep, deep silence of the night and of peace and of holiness enfolded me like love, like safety. The embrace of it, that silence. I had entered into a solitude that was an impregnable fortress, and the silence that enfolded me spoke to me and spoke louder and more eloquently than any voice. And in the middle of that quiet, clean-smelling room, with the moon pouring its peacefulness in through the open window, with the warm night air, I realized truly whose house that was. O glorious Mother of God! How did I ever get back out of there, into the world, after tasting the sweetness and kindness of the love with which you welcome those who stay in your house, even only for a few days, O Holy Queen of Heaven and Mother of Christ? It's very true that the Cistercian Order is your special territory, and those monks in white cowls are your special servants, Servitores Sancte Maria. Their houses are all yours. Notre Dame, Notre Dame all over the world, Notre Dame de Gethsemane. There was still something of the bravery and simplicity and freshness of 12th century devotion, the vivid faith of St. Bernard of Clairvaux and Adam of Persing and Grec of Igny and Alred of Rivelot and Robert of Molesme here in the hills of Kentucky. And I think of the century of Chartres was most of all your century, my lady, because it spoke you clearest, not only in word, but in glass and stone, showing you for who you are, most powerful, most glorious mediatrix of all grace, and the most high queen of heaven, high above all angels, enthroned in glory near the throne of your divine son. And of all things, it is the rules of the religious orders dedicated to you that are loudest and truest in proclaiming your honor, showing forth your power and your greatness obliquely by the sacrifices that love of you drives men to make. So it is that the usages of the Cistercians are a canticle for your glory, Queen of Angels, and those who live under those usages proclaim your tremendous prerogatives louder than the most exalted sermons the white cowl of the silent Cistercian has got the gift of tongues, and the flowing folds of that gray wool full of benediction are more fluent than the Latin of the great monastic doctors. How shall I explain or communicate to those who have not seen these holy houses, your consecrated churches and Cistercian cloisters, 
the might of the truths that overpowered me all the days of that week. Yet no one will find it hard to conceive the impression made on the man thrown suddenly into a Trappist monastery at four o'clock in the morning after the night office, as I was the following day. Bells were flying out of the tower in the high, astounding darkness as I groped half-blind with sleep for my clothing and hastened into the hall and down the dark stairs. I did not know where to go, and there was no one to show me, but I saw two men in secular clothes at the bottom of the stairs going through a door. One of them was a priest with a great head of white hair, and the other was a young man with black hair and a pair of dungarees. I went after them through the door. We were in a hallway, completely black, except I could see their shadows moving toward a big window at the end. I knew where they were going, and they had found a door which opened and let some light into the hall. I came after them to the door. It led into the cloister. The cloister was cold and dimly lit, and the smell of damp wool astounded me by its unearthliness. And I saw the monks. There was one right there by the door. He had knelt, or rather thrown himself down before a pieta in the cloister corner and had buried his head in the huge sleeves of his cowl there at the feet of the dead Christ, the Christ who lay in the arms of Mary, letting fall one arm and a pierced hand in the limpness of death. It was a picture so fierce that it scared me. The abjection, the dereliction of this seemingly shattered monk at the feet of the broken Christ, I stepped into the cloister as if into an abyss. The silence with people moving in it was ten times more gripping than it had been in my own empty room. And now I was in the church. The two other seculars were kneeling there before an altar at which the candles were burning. A priest was already at the altar, spreading out the corporal and opening the book. I could not figure out why the secular priest with the great shock of white hair was kneeling down to serve Mass. Maybe he wasn't a priest after all, but I did not have time to speculate about that. My heart was too full of other things in that great dark church, where, in little chapels all around, the ambulatory behind the high altar, chapels that were caves of dim candlelight, Mass was simultaneously beginning at many altars. How did I live through the next hour it is a mystery to me. The silence, the solemnity, the dignity of these masses and of the church, and the overpowering atmosphere of prayer so fervent that they almost tangibly choked me with love and reverence that robbed me of the power to breathe. I could only get the air in gasps. Oh, my God, with what might you sometimes choose to teach a man's soul? Your immense lessons, here even through only ordinary channels, came to me graces that overwhelmed me like a tidal wave, truths that drowned me with the force of their impact, and all through the plain, normal means of the liturgy, but the liturgy used properly and with reverence by souls inured to sacrifice. What a thing Mass becomes in hands hardened by grueling and sacrificial labor, in poverty and abjection and humiliation. See, see, said those lights, those shadows in all the chapels. See who God is. Realize what this Mass is. See Christ here on the cross. See his wounds. See his torn hands. See how the King of glory is crowned with thorns. Do you know what love is? 
here is love. Here on this cross, here is love. Suffering these nails, these thorns, that scourge loaded with lead, smashed to pieces, bleeding to death because of your sins, and bleeding to death because of people that will never know him and never think of him and will never remember his sacrifice. Learn from him now how to love God and how to love men. Learn of his cross, his love, and how to give your life away to him. Almost simultaneously, all around the church at all the various altars, the bells began to ring. These monks, they rang no bells at the Sanctus or the Hanc Igtur, only at the consecration. And now suddenly, solemnly, all around the church, Christ was on the cross, lifted up, drawing all things to himself, that tremendous sacrifice tearing hearts from bodies and drawing them out to him. See, see who God is, see the glory of God going up to him out of this incomprehensible and infinite sacrifice in which all history begins and ends, all individual lives begin and end, in which every story is told and finished and settled for joy or for sorrow. The one point of reference for all the truths that are outside God their center, their focus, love. Faint gold fire flashed from the shadowy flanks of the upraised chalice at the altar. Do you know what love is? You have never known the meaning of love. Never, you who have always drawn all things to the center of your own nothingness. Here is love in this chalice full of blood, sacrifice, mactitation. Do you not know that to love means to be killed for the glory of the beloved? And where is your love? Where is your own cross? If you say you want to follow me, if you pretend to love me. All around the church the bells rang as gentle and fresh as dew. But these men are dying for me. These monks are killing themselves for me. And for you, for the world, for the people who do not know me, for the millions that will never know them on this earth. After communion, I thought my heart was going to explode. When the church had practically emptied after the second round of masses, I left and went to my room. When I next came back to the church, it was to kneel in the high balcony in the far end of the nave for tears and sext and then non and the conventual mass. And now the church was full of light, and the monks stood in their stalls and bowed like white seas at the ends of the psalms, those slow, rich, somber, and yet lucid tones of the psalms, praising God in his new morning, thanking him for the world he had created and for the life he continued to give to it. Those psalms, the singing of the monks, and especially the ferial tone for the little hour hymns, what springs of life and strength and grace were in their singing. The whole earth came to life and bounded with new fruitfulness and significance and the joy of their simple and beautiful chanting that gradually builds up to the climax of the conventual mass. Splendid, I say, and yet this Cistercian liturgy in Lent was reduced to the ultimate in simplicity. Therefore, it was all the more splendid because the splendor was intellectual and effective and not the mere flash and glitter of vestments and decorations. Two candles were lit on the bare altar. A plain wooden crucifix stood above the tabernacle. The sanctuary was closed off with a curtain. The white altar cloth fell at both ends, almost to the floor. 
The priest ascended the altar steps in a chasuble, accompanied by a deacon and alb and stole. And that was all. At intervals during the mass, a monk in a cowl detached himself from the choir and went slowly and soberly to minister at the altar with grave and solemn bows, walking with his long flowing sleeves dangling almost as low as his ankles. The eloquence of this liturgy was even more tremendous, and what it said was one simple, cogent, tremendous truth. This church, the court of the Queen of Heaven, is the real capital of the country in which we are living. This is the center of all vitality that is in America. This is the cause and reason why the nation is holding together. These men, hidden in the anonymity of their choir and their white cowls, are doing for their land what no army, no Congress, no president could ever do as such. They are winning for it the grace and protection and friendship of God.